Well, just this week, you may have seen that whilst a Norwegian women's beach handyball team was fined, so they were fined for improper clothing, for refusing, for dare refusing to wear uh, bikini bottoms instead of wanting to wear shorts, a British sprint Paralympian was criticised for inappropriate clothing for wearing running briefs that were deemed too short. Apparently, one wore too much and another wore too little. We live in a culture with often confusing and contradicting standards about what is supposedly appropriate or inappropriate for men and especially for women. And when you first hear 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you might be thinking, here we go, more of the same again. Men telling women what or what not to wear. On first reading, it's not surprising that this probably isn't anyone's favourite passage, I suspect, here today. And as I visit people's homes, I'm yet to see these verses prominently hanging in a frame in someone's entryway. I just haven't seen it yet. It's probably not even the first passage we'd think of looking together as a church. But because we're committed to a systematic approach to the Bible here at St Bart's, we don't just take our fave parts of the Bible that are straightforward or comfortable, but we try to seriously and intentionally engage with the whole counsel of God's Word, even when it's complex. That's why we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 to 16. We take the Bible seriously. But immediately as we open these verses, and you heard them read, there's a problem with that claim. Because if we took a quick scan around the room, we'd immediately note that no man, actually there was someone with a hoodie this morning, but no man and few women have their heads covered. And perhaps even more shockingly, there might even be some men here with long hair and some women with short hair. And actually, whilst we're on this, I've noticed that despite the very clear mandate in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, almost no men here at St. Bart's greet each other with a holy kiss, uh, COVID restrictions aside. And even though Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that women should not wear gold and pearls, you know what I've noticed? Some do. Are we flagrantly disobeying the word of God? How do we discern what to do? If we treat everything in the Bible as culturally dependent, we'll be in danger of disregarding God's word. But if we fail to understand the cultural context, we'll be in danger of misunderstanding God's word. The answer? We need to understand the letter first in the context of whom it was first written. That's what we're going to try and do today. And the big picture, whilst Paul congratulates the Corinthians, you'll notice in verse 2, for putting into practice a lot of what he had previously taught them as they try to live as followers of Jesus in the world, it turns out they're still getting a lot wrong. He wants them to understand when they should be distinctive from culture because the culture is incompatible with the gospel or it denies our imperative to link distinctively or it might cause other people to stumble. But he also wants them to understand when they should relate to culture 
so that they don't create any unnecessary barriers or controversy. So as Christians, we can't just take all of culture, nor can we just try to hide away from culture. We've seen that. Paul's already addressed that with regards to sex, with a culturally distinctive view. He's addressed it when it might be okay or unhelpful to eat meat with some cultural accommodations. But right now, as we come to chapter 11, this week and next week, we'll see the focus on how they worship. Fair to say, right up front, that we have lots of questions coming into this passage. We don't know exactly what Paul has previously taught. The the question we don't know may have been raised with Paul that precipitated his response. We, We don't know all of the cultural conditions of the time, nor do we even know if the references to veils or hair, uh, which way it is, or if this teaching is for all men and women, or more specifically for husbands and wives. But what we do know is that at the time, married women usually wore head coverings to indicate that they were married. Loosely worn hair by women had all sorts of negative associations, and men with long hair would have also given the wrong impression. That's what we know. So as we seek to understand what the letter meant to the first recipients and then to us, it teaches us three things about men and women. Men and women are different. Men and women are interdependent, and men and women are free to participate. So first, it teaches us that men and women are different, not in some sort of cliched, culturally dependent way, but in a glorious way that reflects how we're made. So verse 3. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. So I want you to note, Paul is addressing behaviour for both men and women. But at the heart of these verses, Paul seems to be saying that men and women are different because they have different heads. And the way that they dress in the context either points to or contradicts that reality. That's the key point. Uh, The problem is that when it comes to the use of the word head that's repeated over and over again by Paul, there's actually not really a consensus amongst biblically sincere folk on how best to understand it. Now, clearly Paul is being metaphorical. He's not just referring to the part, the body part that sits on top of our necks. But even so, there are three main ways that the word head here has been understood. The first way is to do with authority like headmaster or the head of a department. So reminiscent of when Paul talks about Jesus being the head of the church. But in the context here, especially as God is the head of Christ, that's what Paul says, this view makes less sense unless you take it as a reflection of Jesus submitting to the Father. The second way of understanding this is to do with source, like the head of a river. That certainly seems to resonate as Paul references the creation story in the verses that precede it, that God created man, woman came from man. But that gets a little trickier when you think that Christ is from God, for, of course, actually Jesus is God. 
The third way of understanding it is to do with representation. That the head stands for something else, the head figure. That the first man, Adam, was made by God. That it was from Adam, the first human, the head, that everyone else follows. That with Jesus, the new Adam, the head, is the very representation of God. Now, we just can't say for absolute certainty what Paul had intended here. However, whatever the understanding, most commentators agree that Paul is clearly using wordplay not to demonstrate hierarchy, but to remind the Corinthians that not only are males and females different, but they shouldn't seek to conceal or obliterate such difference. Then the words of Tom Wright, that in worship is important for men and women to be their truly created selves, to honour God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. But of course, the Corinthians seem to be doing the exact opposite. We don't know if charged up, fueled up by Paul's teaching in Galatians that there is neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave or free, that instead of understanding that to mean that the gospel is available to absolutely everyone, that they mistook that to mean that there were no longer distinctions between them and therefore they went on to try and obscure, diminish or obliterate anything that suggested difference. The problem, of course, not only is this a mixed-up understanding of what Paul said, but by trying to show that by men covering or females uncovering, it's sending a confusing and actually likely scandalous message to the world. That's likely what verse 10, verse 10, which is probably the most confusing verse of the whole section, about, is about regarding the angels. It could mean that angels joining with them in worship are offended. It could also mean civic messengers, because the original word could mean messengers. It could mean that civic messengers from the outside who observe Christian worship are offended as they undo cultural norms. For when a man veiled, when they prayed or prophesied, as it seems some were doing, it actually may have looked like they were imitating a pagan practice of worship at the time, which would have clearly sent a very strange message to outsiders. And when a married woman took off her veil, when she prayed or prophesied, the veil not being a sign of suppression, but that she was married, it may have been interpreted to mean that she was withdrawing from her marriage. It'd be a bit like if someone came up the front here at church today to read the Bible, but before they read the Bible, they took their wedding ring off. Or if a married person listed themselves on a Christian dating website. That's why Paul says they may as well be shaved. Because that's what happened to some women who had committed adultery. Now, compounding this even further, at the time when Paul wrote, there had been a movement amongst elite Roman women in public to start wearing their hair down and indulge in all sorts of sexual promiscuity. In a culture in which married men were basically free to do whatever they wanted, but the woman was expected to be faithful to the husband, you can understand why they tried to correct in this way. But of course, it was a correction in the wrong direction. The correction of the culture for equality was not for women to do the same as men, but for the men, as Paul has already challenged the Corinthians, to be faithful to their wives. The path to equality 
was not the erosion of difference, but faithfulness to God. So often when it comes to gender and equality, I think we get it wrong. We either erode difference in fear of undermining equality, or we exaggerate difference with often cringe-worthy expressions of what it means to be male and female. But that's not what the gospel does. The gospel corrects unhealthy ways of expressing difference that subvert the other. The gospel affirms healthy ways of celebrating that God has made us male and female. In gathered worship, we're, we're compelled to find ways of celebrating and expressing that. In the first century, it was radical to say men and women are equal. Today, it's radical to say men and women are different. Our culture, of course, doesn't use clothing much to point to our distinctiveness. But don't think for a second that we don't erode our difference in a myriad of other ways. The gospel shows that we're both different and equal. Second, men and women are interdependent. So verse 7. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Really important up front to get this clear to say that when Paul says that man refers is the, says the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man, he is not saying that only men are created in the image of God. Nor is Paul saying that women in some way have a, a lesser glory than men. Paul is actually appealing back to the creation story. The point is not that men are made in God's image and women aren't but that the image of God as humans follows down through Adam ever since, and that with the creation of woman, that there was something complete about humanity. So do you remember how excited Adam was at the sight of Eve? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. If anyone thinks that it's not particularly masculine to break out into poetry... Adam must have got it wrong. The first thing that was not good was for man to be alone. This is not some sort of biblical imperative that all must be married, but that it's man and woman together that reflect the image of God that we can't do it alone. There is something beautifully complementary about men and women that together reflect the image of God. That's why our differences should not be denied. We, we see a glimpse of that, I think, by design, as men and women come together to make life. Now, that, of course, isn't the totality of how it is expressed or known, but it's so significant. So often our culture, in order to assert the equality of men and women, we not only deny the difference, but actually often we send a message of saying, I don't need you, to the other but that won't do. Paul presses the point of our interdependence even more. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. 
Everything comes from God. Man is not independent of woman. Woman is not independent of man. It's quite incredible to think about it. God brought order out of chaos. And at the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle of his created order was the interdependence of man and woman. In fact, just think, Paul's actually inferring something quite clever here. He's inferring that Eve had been first created, then there would have been no interdependence because it would have been all men are doubly born of woman. God created them male and female, and then he delegates to them together to rule creation. The order of things that Paul is appealing to here would have been incredibly countercultural in Corinth. In a culture that believed that the hierarchy went something along the lines of the gods, the emperor, and then all the various layers by status of society, you'll see that in Christ it's totally flattened out. In Paul's culture, in which women were valued so little, this was a radical thing to say. Yet strangely, in a culture today, when it's radical to say that men and women are different, I feel so so silly almost saying that, but it's so radical to say today. To say that today, though, in some way that we need each other, is also incredibly radical. See, not only are we missing out by not appreciating our difference, but when we deny that we need each other, we're limiting how we display the glory of God. Recently, I looked at the pattern of the way that men and women are involved in the life of our church, and it was really thrilling as I looked across parish council and staff and small groups and leaders that actually there's almost 50-50 people involved. But of course, that's not everything. It means making fun of the opposite sex is just not on. It means focusing effort to value diversity of men and women. It means finding ways to express difference in ways that don't diminish our equality. It means intentionally serving the Lord together because we know we're interdependent. Finally, men and women are free to participate. We'll have, a, we'll have more to look at about this in chapter 14, but in the meantime, it really is quite extraordinary that amidst all the controversy and distraction that was happening because of how men and women were participating in worship, Paul not once questions or even hints that they've got something wrong about who is involved in prayer and prophesying. Did you notice that? Uh, Praying here means publicly speaking to God. Prophesying here means speaking to those gathered, building up, comforting and consoling. The point is, in the pattern of what makes for the gathered worship, it's both men and women participating in these roles. It's incredibly radical. You might recall in Jewish worship, men and women, they were separated by a screen. But right here, both in the same ways, participating in gathered worship. You can imagine with all the debacles and controversies, Paul's hearing all these reports, you can imagine him really being concerned at the risk of things being misinterpreted by outsiders, but it would just be so much easier to say, Paul say, okay, that's it, just the presbyter, they're just doing these things, no one else is doing it. But doesn't do that. Why? Because he must be convinced that both men and women should be involved. Not cancelling the difference, 
nor obliterating the other, but also demonstrating their interdependence. For Paul, it's worth it, for that's what the gospel does. It corrects our culture where it's broken, and it affirms and enhances our culture when it points to Jesus. But no, it's all for the glory of God. So right back to the verses at the end of chapter 10, just precede this section. Verse 10, chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And that's the measure for our worship too. How we wear our hair or whatever we have in our heads is probably not an issue for today, but the principles matter. Men and women are different. Men and women are interdependent. Men and women are free to participate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the way in which you have made us and created us. Lord, we pray that you would help us never to deny or try to obliterate our difference, but that we might celebrate and rejoice in the ways in which you have made us. Lord, may we look for opportunities to build one another up, to show our interdependence to the world, that we might value our brothers and our sisters in Christ and together participate in worship. We pray, Lord, that nothing we would do as gathered people of God would be a distraction, that nothing we do would cause controversy, but always in our hearts and minds we would be seeking your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen.